Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined by renowned critic Armand White, now of National Review Online, for a discussion of film and its place in American society. What does the audience hope for? What are the expectations and what are the responsibilities of movies and movie makers? Sir, please introduce yourself and our first topic of conversation. Well. This is Armin White, a film critic for National Review Online and Out Magazine, and pop culture critic all around. Yes, you have written several books on Prince, on Tupac Shakur, on, I think, Michael Jackson yes. as well. Yes, I've offered... Do you want to tell us about that? Oh, surely. Happy to. I've offered several books. Uh, the first is a collection called The Resistance, 10 Years of Pop Culture That Shook the World. Then there's a book called Keep Moving, The Michael Jackson Chronicles. Uh, there's a book called Rebel for the Hell of It, The Art Life of Tupac Shakur. And most recently, the book New Position, The Prince Chronicles, which is available on Amazon. I am familiar with the Tupac book in part, but not with the other ones. Your book The Resistance is tied up with pop culture and movies, is it not? Yes, yes. Do you mind telling us a bit about it? It's a collection of pieces that I wrote for for the period of 1984 to 1994, which I consider a turning point in pop culture, and that being a period when popular artists in film, music, and some of the other arts became explicitly political and were able to express political points of view in a new way, but most importantly, in a very accessible way. Well, actually more important than that, in a way that was also artful, not propaganda, but artful. Although I also do discuss artists who were not successful at it, but were still making the attempt, and in doing so were worth my reader's interest. Well, I... So it covers a wide range of artists as a reflection of my own interest in pop culture, which means generally film and popular music. So it covers artists from, from Spielberg to Godard to Scritti Politti to Pedro Almodovar to Morrissey to Grace Jones and even more. That does sound quite eclectic and perhaps in future you'd like to record a conversation about that as well. Oh sure. I feel that this is a conversation that is much neglected in public at least. Yes, oh yes, uh, probably because the state of journalism and criticism has declined so there's very little serious discussion about culture these days. Yeah, this is one of the subjects we've broached on Twitter now and then, of all places, that there's a certain responsibility to criticism, especially in a free society, and critics are, at least to a considerable extent, dropping the ball. Yes, that's unfortunate. But that is the state of things, and unfortunately not enough people realize it. Unfortunately, most journalists don't realize it because journalism has declined so much uh, recently. Yeah, it does seem like it is very difficult to introduce a kind of critical distance or a standard of judgment other than popularity in an environment that is massively driven by large corporations. Mm -hmm. Driven by large corporations, but also driven by unthinking people. People who would rather just have art be entertainment rather than art being something that enhances their lives. Yeah, as you mentioned about artists becoming more political, it is the thing to attempt to be mindful about society at the same time as one is artful and tries to express the important things that concern people in a coherent way that's accessible to an audience and stands alone as a work of art. 
Yes, and there's a real difference between art that is political and art that is simply propagandistic. And these days, we tend to have more of the latter. We simply are being inundated with particularly films that express a leftist point of view, and generally a shallow leftist point of view at that. And that's quite different from the kinds of uh, works of art that I was able to examine and uh, that I commended in my book, The Resistance. My own sense is that the shallowness is more dangerous than the ideology itself, both because it claims a kind of easy triumph that leaves everything unexamined. Oh, of course. But also because it promotes a mindless attitude. One would think that ideologues could try to make serious art in as much as their ideology informs their understanding of the world. But in as much as works of art are merely trumpeting or bragging in various ways about certain ideological triumphs, then there's no art and there's no real ideology either. Well, you know, I... When you put it that way, it makes me think that shallowness is the result of a particular ideological ignorance. You know, if you ask most people what ideology means, they have no idea what it means. They might guess that it's what the other guy <laughs> believes in, not being aware of their own ideological tendencies. But we all got it. We all have ideologies. And it's always refreshing when you see a work of art that makes that clear. And in making it clear, makes you understand your own social and humane position as well. That's what good art will do. But bad art will simply congratulate you for having a particular ideological position. Yeah, and I would say that, in part, the dramatic form of the movie, the fact that there is a plot and that movie-making has an arsenal of arresting images and sounds and montages to attract an audience's attention, all these possibilities suggest that you don't need to insult people to get them to confront the limits of their own ideology. You don't need to dismiss a point of view in order to be be thoughtful and even critical about it. Right. But you do have to take flesh and blood persons as characters. You have to take real human situations as dramatic situations and try to think through them in a dramatic way by plot and symbol. Yes, yes, but that doesn't happen often, especially these days. Yeah, my. Do you have a sense of what drives the thoughtlessness, so to speak, the unthinking affirmation of shallow ideologies? Yes, most frequently power is what drives it. Uh, <laughs> we've just come out of a period, I think you could almost call it a revolutionary period, the past eight years, where certain ideologies were in power. Sure. And certain ideologies were forcing ideas upon the public and doing so without any resistance, if I can use that word again. And after that eight-year period ended with the election in 2016, ideological popular culture from Hollywood has become even more shallow and even more zealous and even more pernicious in a way. The reason why we have certain films like the movie Detroit, like the movie Three Billboards, like Spielberg's upcoming The Post, is because the people who make those movies feel the lack of the power that they enjoyed for the past eight years, and now they're trying desperately to get it back by forcing certain shallow liberal ideas upon the public. And there's also an element of vindictiveness, a fairly petty attempt to punish Yes. ideologies and social classes and people dismissed by Hollywood in the fictitious form of film. Well, particularly that the past eight-year period that we suffered through, it created an elite, a kind of aristocracy in which people were so sanctimonious and so protective of their own ideas and no one else's that they became vindictive, they became vengeful, 
and felt a need, it seems, to punish anyone who didn't follow their way of thinking. And so we have a culture that punishes people who are not politically correct, to put it simply. And we have movies that promote that kind of idea as well. And, oh, not, not to mention TV shows and other forms of media that promote the idea of punishment. Yeah, so there seems to be a, a massive disconnect between the production of popular culture on the one hand, and on the other hand, public life in broader terms, including politics, elections, and public reactions to major events. I think so. It does seem popular culture is dominated in a way that's both unthoughtful and unhelpful. Yes, I would agree with that. We've suffered it, certainly for the past eight years, and still are suffering it. And so it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. But what is necessary is that people realize where it comes from. And I think one way of recognizing where it comes from is to acknowledge that in the past eight years, when I talked about a kind of elitism, elite and aristocracy was established, where this divide comes from, it comes from a class division. And class is something that Americans are loath to talk about. But I believe <laughs> class differences do exist, and class differences certainly exist in the production of media, and people ought to recognize that and be aware of it. Yeah, so far as I can see, on the conservative side, it is at least by instinct in opposition to Hollywood. The only recognition of a class problem is the sense that, say, the Oscars are all about self-appointed, self-anointed prestige, in a way that rejects the American majority as anything except a passive but receptive audience. Yes. Yes, it's true. But it seems that beyond that, there's not a lot of thought among people who oppose this kind of liberal preening from whatever political position. There's not a lot of thought about trying to organize any alternative or to offer people a way to be more than merely oppositional and merely rejecting of, say, Hollywood products. Yes, and I'm not sure how an average person becomes oppositional to that stuff, except perhaps to ignore it and uh, not give it your time or your money. The Oscars are, are a funny uh, illustration of this problem, actually, since especially in recent years, when the Oscars have become so explicitly political, and this has happened at the exact same time that movies have become less and less popular. And so the Oscars recognize movies that have a certain political position, that express a certain political ideology. Movies like 12 Years a Slave, movies like Moonlight, movies like Spotlight. And these are movies that the public has very little interest in. And so there's your example of a class division, a cultural division right there. You have the film industry promoting certain kinds of movies, but these are movies that your average person has no interest in, doesn't go to see. And every time the Oscars are promoted, there's a fallacy at work that this is a traditional Hollywood institution that everyone knows about and respects. But in point of fact, people don't respect it anymore. People are more likely to be horrified by it now and puzzled by it because it promotes movies that people don't go to see. It promotes movies that people are not interested in. And they're not interested in them largely because I suspect they're not only poorly made and uninteresting, but because they tend to express an ideology that is offensive to many. I would say that films like 12 Years a Slave, Spotlight, and Moonlight are offensive in the way they express certain political ideas. Yeah, it would seem that the authors of Prestige are not capable nor willing to engage with the broad audience. Yes, they only engage... Right. Oh yes, yeah, I, I agree with that. Filmmakers tend to only connect to people who work in the media, and there's certainly a class division there as well. 
unless you work in the media, you tend not to care about those kinds of movies. So it becomes a case of, of Hollywood talking back to the media, talking to the media, the media talking back. And the conversation is strictly between them, whereas the rest of the world, certainly the rest of the United States, but the rest of the world, I would say, is on the outside looking in. And it really has nothing to do with us. Yeah. <laughs> But it's certainly worth commenting on and helping people to understand it better. That's where I come in. Yeah, and even this has more and more of a feel to it that in commenting on popular culture, we're commenting on liberal culture, and more and more we're introducing this wild and loathed animal to an audience that lives in a different world. Yes. Because the cultures are so separate, it's like a safari or zoo exhibit. Oh, of course. And yes, it does tend to be a liberal culture. But every so often, you know, you get works of art that speak to a broader audience than that, that have a larger point of view than just a liberal point of view. And that's when you get art that's really good, really interesting, and is uh, edifying. For example, movies like Motion, Makhmabov's The President, films like Andre Tishine's Being 17, films like Zack Snyder's Man of Steel and Batman vs. Superman. These movies transcend the dominant liberal ideology, and they're among the best movies that have been made in recent years. And it seems like there's a need for public conversation that supports and explains these things so that they don't stay at the level of flashes in the pan. Yes, yes. That's also where I come in, because I, I, I try to keep the idea of good art up front and remind readers that there's art out there that will interest them and sustain them, whether or not it's promoted heavily in the media. Yes, and so this is one part of the problem we're facing, the corruption of prestige. But we have a similar problem with the corruption of popularity. I mean specifically that the movies are turning into Disney. The popular experience of movies is Disney animations or Disney Pixar animations or Disney Star Wars movies or Disney Marvel superhero movies. All right. And this seems very unhelpful. I noticed with some astonishment this year that America just got smaller again in so far as Hollywood can understand it. Time was when America could have Marvel heroes with their Robert Downey Jr. sarcasm and on the other hand DC heroes that were serious, that were about tragedy, that were about the most dangerous and most serious things that people can face and were nevertheless popular. And that has been compromised. Zack Snyder's new movie, Justice League, was finished by Marvel Man himself, the guy who made the Avengers, Joss Whedon, who has no idea about any of these serious things involved in tragedy and action movies. Uh, that's so true. <laughs> he has no idea. He has no idea what's involved in tragedy. And yet, his involvement <laughs> in the Zack Snyder films is a... <laughs> Universal tragedy, if I may yeah. use that term. It is tragic. And it happens at the behest of corporations who just want to imitate other people's success. And it happens also at the behest of media, it seems to me, who want to keep audiences ignorant and not have audiences contemplate their own political and spiritual lives. And I believe that that is the subject of the Zack Snyder films. And so the media attacks them because they don't want people to think about that stuff. Uh, they'd rather just have consumers be mindless consumers. Yeah, there's a certain instinctive rejection of these movies as 
pretentious or too brooding as though the temperature in the room should never rise or fall yeah. and anything outside is provocative and in an age where provocation is advertised it is so little practiced right right and that is a cultural tragedy and i'm, I'm glad you put it that way because it, it's so and i guess it reflects a larger decline in society it's not just coincidence that the Pixar movies are connected to the Apple Corporation because that same kind of social decline in film taste and in technological preference is part of the tragedy that we're enduring. Consumerism has moved people to a place where they don't even make choices anymore. They simply worship a certain kind of corporate idea. They worship Apple, they worship Steve Jobs, they worship Pixar. And I think it's all related, yeah. and it's all unfortunate because it means that people are thinking less and less. Yes, so America for a while was big enough to have both Marvel and DC, but that seems to have come to an end because only one is tolerable. Just like in every other field, there is this tendency which bespeaks both decline and great anxiety to only go for the biggest thing there is. In any field, there can be only one dominant corporation, right. and people can trust it because everybody's involved in it as a user or as being used in return. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's terrible that you have people in the media who are defending this tragedy, who will never question it and simply promote what's in power. Yep, I realized with astonishment this year when the new Spider-Man movie came out, this too has been turned into a Marvel movie, mm -hmm. and it has this great shocking imagery of Spider-Man who used to be an American boy favorite mm -hmm. because he was small time but morally earnest right. and a real character in a real setting stakes weren't world historical but they were recognizable for young men at least and now he gets his identity and his costume and his belonging to marvel's avengers from marvel's own version of steve jobs a sociopathic genius but sexy and witty robert downey jr's iron man right such a portrait of what it means for a generation to look for its identity to corporations. Well, you said it. think that the future is the next gadget, or the next release of a movie, or better yet, the end credit scenes where you see further coming attraction. <laughs> yeah. You know, I have to admit, I don't stay for the post-credit scenes anymore. Of course not. By that point, I've had enough, and I'm out of there. Yeah, and just as a movie watcher, you don't have to be a critic. You just have to be a child to know that when the movie is over, yeah. if you loved it, you go, wow. Right. And for a while, it stays with you. Of course. Breaking the dramatic impact of a climax for the sake of previews of coming attractions is a betrayal of cinema, of entertainment in the name of corporate consumerism, and it's a popular phenomenon. Right. Well, you make a very good point there. Why are we staging 25 minutes of CGI violence, reenacting 9-11 twice a year on 4,000 screens across the Fruited Plains, only to then short-circuit the emotional impact of that drama? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's all true. <laughs> and we laugh to keep from crying. It's true. I'd extend that point and say that you hit on another cultural problem, television and binging. Now we have popular culture that is intended to have no real effect on its audience at all. It's just content. It's just time-killing and mind-numbing, too. 
And it's become popular because the media has popularized the idea of binging on TV shows. Stories, works of art that have no climax, that have no finish, that have no point. People have accustomed themselves to it. But it, that means it's the end of art, it's the end of thinking. They have a term for that being the golden age of television. Yeah, it's... That fallacy, yes. It's remarkable the extent to which people persuade themselves that what is a middle-class soap opera is <laughs> gold now. And think also of the social implications of spending the weekend watching the new season of whatever is out. Netflix has figured out how much people think yeah. staying in front of a screen indoors by yourself or with somebody maybe is it. Yep. That is the aspiration of sociability and conversation. Yep. It's shocking. Yeah. And uh, nevertheless, this is the situation now, and hopefully there are some ways to improve these things. Well, maybe. I don't know about improving. Maybe there's a way to remedy it. Yeah. I don't know if it can be improved. You know, uh, there's a reason certain forms of art have lasted hundreds of years, because they work, and also because that particular format, that particular structure, tended to be edifying. The TV show that one binges upon is not a helpful new discovery. This became apparent to me, for instance, with the popular the popularization, I should say, of the HBO series The Sopranos. I forget how many years it was on television, seven years, six years, whatever, but it seemed to go on and on and on, repeating itself constantly, but it never had a climax, which is to say it never had a meaning. And it was celebrated by the media and embraced by the gullible public, I think in defiance of what I would call the greatness of the Godfather trilogy. In particular, the greatness of The Godfather Part 3, which the media roundly rejected and encouraged the public to reject because they hated the moral implications of Part 3, which go back to the truth of Greek tragedy. That story has to have an end where that story has to provide catharsis, yes. where that hero has to suffer. Godfather is certainly the most popular, serious movie of the past 50 years. The rejection of that idea led to the popularization of something as meaningless as The Sopranos, and also led to the kind of problem we have today with popular culture, where the idea of, of a climax of catharsis, of moral meaning, has been forsaken. Yes, I think you bring up a great thing, that the heirs of Coppola in our generation were Nolan and Snyder because they approached the same problem, how to do tragedy, how to give people something that is satisfying and at the same time limits the endless desire for novelty. Yeah. The vulgarization of culture through the universalization of comic books offers a great new opening for mythology. Young people especially are open to mythological descriptions of human problems and in certain ways find it easier to take that seriously than social drama in say the mode of the 70s. Yeah. That doesn't work now. But there are options, it's just that they're not explored. Precisely because of this thing you point out that a character Character comes to an end. You cannot escape the logic of character and circumstances playing out. The hope that you can have endless numbers of episodes of Tony Soprano and then a meaningless ending scene that people have to lie to themselves about calling deep presaged something. Right. It was next with Lost, which also portended mystery 
but ended up with a mere nothing and people had to lie to themselves about that. And so with everything else since, I've noticed this with drama series on Netflix, that they have perfected an anticlimax as a pretense, as a show of pretension. The fact that there's no climax to the story is now a kind of badge of honor. And I think it corresponds to a certain psychological awareness, like you suggested, that these things don't mean anything. At the end of the series, you feel empty inside. And that's what you see on screen, and you feel it corresponds with what you're experiencing, and so that must be good. But it's just what you get for wasting so much time. It's the equivalent of spending half a day on Facebook or Twitter. At the end, you will feel your soul dried up and empty inside. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> try to see make me laugh because you're right. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's just it's just it's just not said, but it's certainly true. There was something that happened last week that confirms what you just said. I noticed on the internet that the venerable French film criticism magazine Cahier du Cinéma posted its list of the ten best films of the year. And uh, at the top of the list, I believe, was the David Lynch TV series, Twin Peaks The Return. Yep. This is bizarre, and there's something terribly wrong with it. It isn't a film. It's a TV series, which unfortunately has become the preferred popular culture form for people who pretend to be film critics. And why they would think that that's the number one cultural event of the year goes right to the problem that you just expressed. It's a, a misunderstanding of how narrative ought to function, of how mythology ought to function, where David Lynch just did one thing after another, none of it coherent, endless sleight of hand, of perversion, nonsense, fear, mystery, not even intriguing mystery, just familiar mysteries, in fact, but ugliness over and over again in, in repetition with no ending, no climax. And this is what so-called film critics who ought to be guarding the form that has meant so much to the world for a hundred years, this is what they have chosen to promote now. And that's another tragedy. Yeah, there is something of travesty about this. It's the next thing to do. It's the next frontier. But it's not film. People should be serious about that, at least the people who love film. Not everybody has to swear an oath of fealty to film, but Le Cahier du Cinéma should, has. <laughs> Absolutely. If they don't do it, who's left? Exactly. But they have failed their mission because they fooled themselves into forgetting what art means, and especially what cinematic art means. And in another sense, also, they fooled themselves into disregarding what popular culture means, because no matter how many of the, uh, let's call them uh, the cognoscente, no matter how many of the cognoscente like Twin Peaks to Return, it isn't popular. <laughs> I mean, this is partly a political point as well. In some cases, populism proves something that's real and true about the small-d democratic response. If a piece of popular culture isn't popular, you have to wonder why. And when the piece of popular culture is only celebrated by a coterie, by a clique, or by an elite, you should wonder why. You should question that. Yes, I think that's very much the case that Netflix is as much as Apple, the badge of honor of a certain social class. Yes, absolutely. In itself, that's bad, but not damning. What's damning is how little variety it exhibits. You would think that this is a place for the curiosities of a certain social class that prides itself on its curiosity. There's not that much variety there. No. That's worrying in itself. 
I am a defender of David Lynch because I think his work is all about the moralistic denunciation of what people want out of this new series and the kind of satisfaction that they want to get to show that they're cleverer than everybody else. This was admittedly not addressed to a wide audience, but to the audience it was addressed to, it was addressed as a rebuke, not as flattery. It's just that it's getting harder for the kinds of people who talk about film on Twitter to realize when they are being remonstrated with, which shows a problem with the consumerism of that social class. In general, consumerism is unthinking, but in this particular case, consumerism has a fake sophistication about itself. Mm -hmm. These people cannot tell that David Lynch stories are intensely moralistic, trying to show people through a nightmare logic that they have evil inside of them, that they don't go to these things in innocence. But people won't notice can shout at people only so long if they don't want to see that. <laughs> it's like uh, people who enjoy House of Cards and also enjoy Hitchcock and can't tell the difference. Well, it's because Hitchcock movies were intensely moralistic. They had a plot that came to a conclusion that was supposed to show that nobody goes in innocence to those stories. And that's much neglected now. It seems like the ability to understand that drama has moral implications and moral presuppositions has atrophied. Sure. I agree with that, too. And we obviously disagree about Twin Peaks The Return. Certainly. But why do we disagree about Twin Peaks The Return? My disagreement is partially based in the fact that David Lynch, I think, has, has chosen the wrong medium. I think perhaps if he had stuck to a cinematic narrative where he tells discrete stories rather than one continuous story, it would have appealed to me more. I felt somehow by doing a TV series, he gave in to this unhelpful tendency to repeat tragedy, I felt, to a nihilistic point rather than to a moralistic point. Yes, I do agree that medium does not help him the way he thinks it does. Yeah, and as I watched it, I began to think that it's time to put a knot on some of these story threads, to tie them up and finish them, but instead the misery kept going. For me, it was hellish rather than instructive. And he is deeply pessimistic about our situation. I think that's very interesting, but it doesn't necessarily belong on TV. There has got to be some other way to deal with these things. Well, it doesn't belong in an endless form. It doesn't belong on a loop. Yeah. It should be concluded, and it should be concluded quickly, not dragged out. Yeah, there is something about this sort of work that I hesitate between complacent and on the other hand i know some people who are thoughtful about it and who have learned stuff that's intelligent and morally understandable so i don't condemn it outright but it does not belong in popular culture in any way no. david lynch had an intention to shake sophisticated people out of their complacency out of their self-regard of their sense of possession over the things they consume and that's laudable but i don't think it has succeeded because there are intrinsic requirements to movie just like there are intrinsic requirements to a long form tv storytelling yes and he doesn't meet them even if it's not complacency it is a certain kind of mistake a lack of respect for the rigors and the forms and the genre right we might be able to say that here is a case where David Lean's own artistic ambitions were damaged by a, a certain, a particular commercial format that perhaps he needed a stronger will to resist that format. In terms of how one addresses the public, he isn't facing any question that Hitchcock and Boonwell and the surrealist filmmakers did not also face, but they never gave in to a commercial format that simply disrespected the audience by simply pushing its attention to a point where perhaps 
comprehension no longer became possible, where just watching it became an act of passivity rather than an act of reflection. Yeah. The only thing I can say in defense of Lynch on that end is that he did not release it for binge-watching. This was intended and delivered as three-quarters of an hour of shock mm-hmm. on a weekly basis, not a weekend of horror. I think that was the right step, but it's certainly not enough. Well, that's the defense for him, except that it didn't really work. Because on Showtime, it is possible to record and hold it for binging. Yep. The opportunities that come with this new environment and genre, they're tempting, but they haven't been used for a great purpose yet. Right, I agree with that. And on the other hand, we do lack the use of long storytelling for moralism. I am now watching the Netflix show The Crown, which does pretty good work for a popular audience of showing that love and law, like in tragedy, are often opposites. And it tries to show one thing that doesn't change, monarchy in a society that is otherwise full of change. Persons who dedicate themselves to duty in face of personal sacrifice. And these things are all morally edifying. But where the show gets the symbols right, it doesn't have anything to say about plot. The art of talking through political events and putting them through the perspectives and the moral significance of individual real persons, this somehow has been lost. And I think that this is maybe one big problem. This new medium is intended really for a moral biography, but nobody is really doing that. It takes a combination of poetry and history to get it done, but it's been much neglected in favor of mindless fantasies like, to mention it again, House of Cards. This is just dreadful stuff. I suppose you're right. I've not seen The Crown, but I've seen snippets of it. I've seen scenes from it, and I I suspect you were absolutely correct there. I can only think that part of the trouble is the television format itself, which might be geared to not producing art. The television format itself is a commercialized medium. It exists to sell product rather than to express ideas. Dare I say that cinema is a kind of perfection of popular art in a way that the continuous TV series is not. So I think maybe the relation could be understood like this. The movies are to TV what tragedy is to a novel. Television can only aspire to the diluted and serial character of a novel. You can go through a tragedy, you cannot go through a long novel. By the time you're at the end, you don't know, you don't remember, you're no longer affected in the way you were through the successive episodes. I think there's room for this kind of episodic storytelling, but I don't think it compares ultimately in intensity and importance with what is achieved by the the movie format. No, but I guess there's always a but. When I think about the daytime soap opera, that's a different thing than the long-form nighttime television series. The rules are different. From what I know of, what I've seen in daytime serial, it's always intensely moral. Even as it seems to be endless stories, sometimes it works differently. A complex thing has happened with television, and I suspect it has something to do with the change in filmmaking during the 1990s, when what we call the indie movement came into its prime. And there's a certain kind of storytelling, a certain approach to character, a certain approach to life in the world that independent films promoted, and then that TV makers 
adopted. And it was always taking us away from moral reckoning. And this is what happens in TV series that differ from daytime soap operas. Yes, I think that's true. And there are exceptions like The Crown or Downton Abbey. Mm. By the way, I don't think that it's an accident that these are both series about British royalty, which is a safe spectacle from an American distance, because Americans are by vocation Republicans. But it's good to see a a show of duty (laughs) where you can trust that the moral stakes are real because the characters are real and their duties are real. There are certain things fixed, not up for choice. Your only choice is to accept the duties of your station or office. And everything is not in motion always. And so I can see why this attracts from a distance people from a small R Republican background. But it's also caused me to wonder about this. If the Netflix classes of America can only see duty in the case of the British monarchy, you know, what's left of America? I don't know. To give you a better response to that, I would have to check the ratings on The Crown and Downton Abbey. I don't know how much... Yes, they're popular. Not in the way, of course, things were popular in the 90s and 80s and before. There's not going to be 50 or 60 million people watching. Right. But they're popular with middle-class Americans, whoever has access to these things. Are they really? Yes. I have wide experiences both among liberals and conservatives, and people let their ideological guard down, partly because it's not a local native issue. It's somebody else's problem. Mm -hmm. But also because they're uh, period pieces. They have a certain psychological freedom. You don't feel that your own identity is involved in these things, and you can confess that dignity and responsibility and the sense of duty are good things not just when your guys win but they are good things in themselves and they're necessary for a society to have dignity it's also the case that these are more popular with women than men which i think is to be expected of course they show a certain civilizing intention and that goes together of course with the moral rules of the game so for example in the crown the characters who put love above law that is to say all of us are the bad guys the people who don't want their family to choose or to veto their prospective spouses those are the bad guys this is a shocking thing in popular entertainment Well, I haven't seen it, so I can't comment more on that. But I'm suspicious, Titus. You make, you make a good point, and uh, you make a point well, and it sounds like a very optimistic point, which I'm all in favor of. I guess I'm a little cynical about it, but I haven't seen the show, and so I can't, I can't comment on it. I will admit I'm coming from a different perspective about stories about British royalty. I come from a perspective where, for Americans, it's a form of escapism, and also it's not all that popular. There are people who just don't have a taste for that kind of thing, which is why I question its real popularity. I appreciate your optimism about it, but I'm still suspicious of it. Oh, certainly. And of course, I don't think this presages some transformation, but I do think that it's precisely the escapism that allows people a freedom to be moral. If only. What you're saying sounds good. I'm just suspicious. Sure. I wonder. Sure. There have been so many examples where American audiences watch British stories that ought to be giving them moral instruction and really all they come away with mostly is an appreciation for the clothes and the settings and the wealth. I just wonder. Yes, that is always a part of it and it's always a part of BBC productions and it's really unhelpful. Unhelpful and also that terrible American 
tendency, yes. that inferiority complex. Yes, that is a problem, isn't it? Where they think wealthy people and highly born people are some ways superior. Yeah, I can understand what you mean, and usually Anglophilia is suspect. I don't know, I'm just suspicious, but I... But this has a moralistic cast of characters where you see from beginning to end yeah. who is exploitative and who is capable of sacrifice. What I appreciate about the story is that the royalty is not good as such. They just have a good batting average. One in two in a generation turn out dutiful. The other half mm-hmm. reprehensible at length and explicitly. At least it has that going for itself that it does not look at the beautiful, brilliant people with the kind of worship that one sees at well... the Oscars or events of that character. I'm suspicious. I can't help be suspicious about it. I guess I will remain suspicious until I see the show and if it should change my mind. But I'm suspicious. However, from what you say, I find it curious that there is a TV program that in some sense seems to validate the sacrifice that Queen Elizabeth II has made. Yes, indeed. It's curious that there's a TV show that should do that after we've suffered the deification of Princess Diana, which which is, to me, an alarming example of royalty worship and consumerism and immorality. How did a show like this come about after the way the media made a saint of that opportunistic woman? I don't get it. (laughs) And what's weirder is that it was made by the guy who made The Queen, in which Queen Elizabeth is upbraided for not being democratic enough to love the people's princess. Yes, It, it is quite shocking. And in the story itself, Queen Elizabeth's sister the Princess Margaret, Margaret is yeah. exactly who Lady Diana was, but wittier for the movies. And she's a villain. Well, as I recall, Margaret was wit. She's irresponsible, tyrannical, egotistical, given to wild flights of paranoia. It is amazing. As I recall, Margaret was wittier in life than Diana was also. Yes. But <laughs> that's another story. <laughs> but... Um, but uh, <laughs> You know, uh, the people's princess is an emblem of part of what was wrong with 90s culture. Yes. And arts culture as well. But we can swing this back to the movies by, I guess, briefly mentioning a film like Darkest Hour. Mm-hmm. Something you said reminded me of this. As I watched Darkest Hour, I thought about what was wrong with it. And what was wrong with it to me was that the people who made it lost the gift that a certain generation of British filmmakers used to have for dramatizing moral issues as well as political issues. I think particularly that it lacks the kind of understanding about political choice and moral choice that we almost always got in any film or play made by David Lean, Carol Reed, or uh, Anthony Asquith, written by people like Terence Rattigan and Robert Bolt. I think somehow that talent has been lost. But more than talent, that understanding of what is moral and political sacrifice. It seems there are very few filmmakers who know how to dramatize that anymore. And I took that to be a real problem with Darkest Hour, which attempted to be a very serious film. And and I, I wanted to like it more, in fact. But I didn't feel it was fully successful. I have not seen the movie yet, so I cannot comment on that. But from what I have heard of it, and how you describe it, the problem does ring 
true. I, watching The Crown, I was wondering about this. Churchill is the only person about whom movies are still made. Right. One does not see Reagan movies or Eisenhower movies or even FDR movies. The inability of putting together the person and the times, the morality and the politics is confessed right there by utter silence. But you are right that it's strange to see it collapse in Britain and over this last generation. Yeah. That was a claim to dignity and it's gone. And one hopes to see it restored at least at this level. These series are not much more than soap operas for the middle class, but they do retain the insistence on a moral discussion of character and the revelation of character in drama, in actions, in scenes that persuade you. It's not necessary to do it through dialogue all the time. You can see how characters act and judge them for it. And that's, I think, what should be expected out of longer forms of storytelling. It might help to educate audiences again to become judgmental. (laughs) Yeah. Longer forms of storytelling don't need to be longer than Lawrence of Arabia. (laughs) (laughs) That's a very good point. Well, not everybody's David Lean. That is very hard to pull off. (laughs) So, it takes a particular talent. I suspect that Zack Snyder has that talent, certainly has that ambition, but unfortunately he was frustrated by studio politics or studio economics. Yes, that is a worrying thing because the Nolan brothers and David S. Goyer and Snyder together produced immensely profitable movies that were at the same time works of art. If these people are not tolerated, then who will be? It says something worrying about big studios. Sure. And from the perspective of audiences, audiences have paid for all these movies. Man of Steel was a big success. How much more money do we need to throw at these people before they take us seriously? Yes. Sometimes the studio just has to take yes for an answer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess that comes down to greed. They want more money. But I also suspect that it also comes down to uh, ego. I suspect that the executives at Warner Brothers were shamed by the media response to Zack Snyder films. And they not only wanted the same kind of money Marvel was making, they wanted the kind of media acclaim that Marvel received. That is also my fear. And they were foolishly swayed by stupid critics and stupid journalists who were simply praising whoever made the most money. Journalists tend to be a rather shallow and mean class of people, and so that's how they operate. They're all for Apple, they're all for Pixar, they're all for Marvel. And the only way that they can show that they have any taste whatsoever is to knock Zack Snyder in the DC universe. And Warner Brothers executives had no faith in their own team. Yep, I also have taken this as a teachable moment about how cowardly executives are and how much they are swayed by things far less substantial than the bottom line. Yes, yes. At this point, you just wish for good old-fashioned corruption. Take your money and be happy. Yes, yes. It was stunning to see that the executives at Warner Brothers couldn't appreciate the art that Zack Snyder was bringing to them. What on earth are the Oscars for except perhaps to be a compensation for you making less money than you wished. Yep. The executives at Warner Brothers, they should have been happy at the beauty that Zack Snyder was bringing them. 
and as well as making a, a healthy profit. But we're living in a culture where it wasn't enough, as we said before, a kind of vengeful, punishing culture, a culture that has to make a villain out of somebody, chose the artist to villainize, to punish. Yeah, that does bespeak something wrong in the audience, a certain desire to be flattered that won't tolerate too much mm-hmm. the difficulty and the trouble you face watching one of these movies. Not everything can be as light-hearted and empty as the Avengers. Some things have got to be a bit more serious and hit you a bit harder. Mm-hmm. Yes. We can deal with that, surely. But I also want to say, though, that there is part of the audience that does, and they should be recognized and congratulated as well. There are some in the audience who do appreciate it. Yes. And their voices are in danger of being drowned out, but they're there, and their responses do matter. It's wonderful when you encounter those perceptions then you know that things that are true in in art, true in life, uh, remain so. Yes, that is true. And to emphasize again, all these movies have been successful. The audience does like these sorts of things. Nobody has to force it down anybody's throat. These were massively popular things because people do also have a certain taste for more beautiful things, things that are better shot, things with a more tragic import. Filming characters and situations as though they matter and make a difference and have an impact. There's some hope that some other version of this, the project at Warner Brothers by these writers and directors, has collapsed, unfortunately. Yes, that is the hope. But it did have a considerable success before that, and hopefully it will inspire others to do it. I think one way of working towards that hope, then, is to let people know about the good art that exists, the good films that exist, the ones that recall what it means to be human and what it means to deal with complex issues in life. Those movies are always out there, but they're very rarely in the media. Yes, that's true. They are certainly harder to find. So, Mr. White, we have gone on here for a considerable time, and this about wraps up our episode. That'll be fine. But how about we record another conversation talking about movies you have particularly enjoyed recently? It would be a pleasure to have you on again, and I do agree, more effort needs to be put into spreading news about these things, letting people know that there are alternatives. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. We can say more at some other time, of course, particularly try to encourage more thoughtful movie going and more thoughtful art choices among conservatives who also tend to be subject to the dominance of liberal culture, even when it's bad. So we, there's more to talk about, I guess. Yes, certainly. And I do agree with this, that conservatives are letting their own side down and they could be doing better and be more supportive of the sorts of things that give them pleasure at the same time they make them more thoughtful. Well, sir, thank you again for joining me and let's do this again sometime. Okay. All right. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Okay. Good afternoon. Good afternoon.